Welcome to another episode of the Soak by Slush podcast, where we focus on tactical company building advice with founders, operators, and investors who have built some of the most legendary tech companies of the past two decades. For today's episode, we're joined by Christina Cordova, partner at First Round. Christina spent just short of a decade building partnerships at some of the most illustrious growth companies on the planet. She first joined Stripe as its 28th employee in 2012. Of course, Stripe has since gone on to become the most valuable private company in Silicon Valley. After departing Stripe, Christina joined Notion before turning to early stage investing at first round in much of this year. In terms of topics, today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Soon after joining First Round, the fund's in-house media First Round Review published an interview with Christina detailing the 23 most important tactical company building lessons she has learned. Today, we dive deeper into some of the advice shared in that article. Let's go to the episode. Well, Christina, welcome onto the podcast. It is so exciting to to have you here. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. And let's start with some context on your operational background. So you worked at two companies that I think rank among the most exceptional sort of tech success stories of the past decade in, in Stripe and Notion. And I want to start by knowing, like, which foundational traits do Stripe and Notion share as, as companies? Both companies, they were founded by leaders who were doing this, you know, for roughly the first time. And so when I think about both sets of founders, and I think they're very different, but I think both very optimistic about the world and what their company can ultimately achieve. And both, I think very early on knew that they wanted to build generational companies. And I think for an employee like me, that was extremely attractive because I I really wanted to think about it as like, I am dedicating my time to a company that can have a significant amount of impact on the world. And I... I loved the idea that when I asked like, oh, like, would you be open to an acquisition? They were like, never, you know, for both, for both companies and having that singular vision of what they wanted to achieve and knowing that they could do it on their own, I think is, is pretty consistent as well. Very interesting. Then let me ask a a sort of a more personal question. So you came to Notion having just built out a 30 person org and you kind of faced the prospect of doing that over and again. What is the one thing you thought to yourself? Like, I'm not going to make this mistake again like this. I'm going to do differently in scaling the, the org this time around? Hmm, It's a great question. I think the biggest thing I thought about doing differently was around product, (laughs) specifically that I was effectively like our first quasi product person in that I was working on product for platform, but I was not called a product manager. We had not had conversations about hiring product managers, but because I was kind of the closest thing to a product manager at a certain point, we said, is it about time to start hiring product managers? Would that make us more efficient with product development? development? Mm. Would it help us make sure that we're building the right things for the right customers? And so taking a step back, I said, oh, wow, we're at the same kind of situation I was in at Stripe when we were 200, 300 people, when Stripe didn't have any product managers and started to think about hiring the, the very first ones. And so the biggest issue in that moment for Stripe was that we had almost done it too late. Mm. And we had kind of told a lot of people that like, we didn't have product managers and that was kind of a good thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so like it was very difficult to hire those first few product managers because both the org was kind of like, who are these people? What are they supposed to be doing here? I don't get this. And those people were like, what is my role here? How do I fit in? Which, which is funny because I think a lot of people externally say, well, Stripe didn't hire product managers until 300 people. And look how great Stripe turned out. And I think you have to realize that sometimes companies are successful in spite of some poor decisions 
organizations, and that is one of them. And so as we were starting to have discussions around hiring product managers at Notion, I felt that there were a couple key areas where we could hire a product manager relatively soon. One of them was growth, which I was actually doing for the company at the time. And I think we were a much more effective organization after we hired a full-time person to lead growth product for the company. And for me, that was like a big difference because I think a lot of people could understand why is this person here? Um, the rest of the growth team um, in terms of engineering and design was really happy to have that person join. So I feel like culturally, it was a big change from when we hired the first product manager to try frankly. I think the sort of product management commentary about Stripe is, is very interesting because you're right, people do proclaim that that was a reason for Stripe's success rather than, you know, something it, it succeeded despite of. I think the other sort of story that repeatedly gets told about Stripe is that like their first product was only seven lines of code, which obviously wasn't the case. Um, so there are many yeah. of these interesting <laughs> anecdotes that are not true, apparently. Um, anyway, let's let's yes. dive into, so you recently joined First Round, which is an exceptional VC. And one of the first things that I saw come out was this uh, brilliant article on First round review where you basically distilled sort of 23 tactical company building lessons from your time as an operator. And so I thought we'd uh, spend some time diving deeper into into ones uh, I found particularly interesting. And I think the first one I wanted yeah. to touch on is you mentioned that when you interviewed for Stripe, Stripe's founders, Patrick and John, were sort of already thinking beyond the product about various elements that go into building a generational company. So to that end, and if we abstract that, like what are the areas that founders regularly underinvest in early on that are actually critical to building yeah. an enduring company? Yes. I would say first and foremost, people. I think a lot of early stage organizations perhaps go a little fast and loose with hiring. And I really appreciated that Stripe would spend a lot of time with potential candidates to figure out if they were a fit for the organization, for the role. Mm -hmm. And I think we were also generally quite generous in terms of equity compensations. It's pretty well known that Stripe offered 10% of the company to the first 10 employees. And even though I joined as employee 28, I knew that the company valued people enough to say, we're going to give you a significant chunk of the company to motivate you to stay here. Mm-hmm. And then I think there was just like a big emphasis around written communication and culture and writing down what we believe in for a company. Like rather than having a specific budget for every single little thing with in the organization and how much do you spend when you go on a business trip? We just had a general mantra around spend Stripe's money like it's your money. Um, And there was just a discipline to, I think, how the business was set up. And that came through in in the earliest days. And so, you know, I don't think you had maybe the excesses that you would see with like other startups and these like fancy um, occasions, you know, Beyonce (laughs) holding a company concert or something like that. That would never happen, Stripe, right? And so, for me, I think the difference between Stripe and a lot of other early stage companies was the founders wanted to build a great company, not just a great product. Very interesting. Moving on, in the article, you also talked about kind of the importance of focus on your product when you're taking it from zero to one, which I suppose is sort of analogous to taking it from zero to to product market fit. And, And one thing that I found sort of very helpful that you advocated for is kind of keeping the length of your stack rank constant. Like basically, if you decide to 
to work on something new, you take something else off the list. I, I find that that diligence is, is quite interesting. So first of all, I wanted to ask, like, on a product path to product market fit, what are the heuristics by which that sort of stack rank should be composed and prioritized? Like, basically, what are the parameters by which something should end up on the list? And what should judge whether it's number one or it's number 10? I think for a lot of companies, you're going to have certain things that are foundational, even though it doesn't feel like it delivers any value to the customer. So if we don't work on this, then we might find that the product is put into a particularly bad place. As an example, no customer at Notion asked us for, you know, sharding our database or something like that, right? But they did ask us to make the product faster. Or, you know, at Stripe, we were working with a banking partner that just caused a bunch of like operational toil that was not great for the business and slowed us down. So that might be something that maybe no one's asking you specifically for what you build, but it will ultimately deliver some kind of value to the customer. And I think you need to prioritize a certain subset of those things. Otherwise, you'll find yourself in a really bad place, you know, two, three years from now. So I think some of those things are going to be on your stack rank. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think the vast majority of the rest of your list should be significantly user driven, right? So you are either going to be delivering direct value to customers, customers are asking for XYZ, you build XYZ, or customers are asking for ABC, and you give them DEF, which solves the same problem, but perhaps in a different way. So a good example of a product like that would be all of these businesses on Stripe for a long time were saying, hey, I want custom report X or custom report Y of my Stripe financial data. And we could just start building a bunch of custom reports. Instead of doing that, we said, well, why don't we actually build our own like querying interface with some pre-built queries based mm. on what a lot of customers ask us for that they can just run. And so it's a little bit more of a teaching someone else how to fish type of product so that we reduce longer term workload for ourselves, but you get the customer what they're looking for at the end of the day. So, you know, broadly, I would say infrastructure, core investments in the business and in the product that will have longer term payoff is like a big area of what a stack rank would have. And then, you know, really just like delivering for customers should be the other piece of it. Very interesting. Uh, I think one input into the stack rank that you sort of advised founders had to think about in the article was uh, was partnerships. And at Stripe, you spent sort of a, a number of years heading uh, payment and platform partnerships. And I think, you know, for another type of product, for like a, a B2B product with sort of bigger average check size, I think partnerships could be analogous to like customer. Um, so, so in the article, you, you sort of caution founders not to let themselves get distracted by the expectations of custom features and so on by partners. So can you yes. expand on on that. How do you know whether a deviation that a given partner is asking mm -hmm. for is an acceptable one or an excessive one? Yes, it's it's so hard and it's so nuanced. And I <laughs> walk a lot of the founders through this because I, I think it's just incredibly hard at the early stages. I think I like to start with what you want to avoid. So generally, you want to avoid becoming a custom dev shop for your customer, right? Yeah. You don't want to be in a position where you are constantly just taking in requests and, and all you do, you know, is just change the product to suit the needs of this one customer. You are not building software that is specific to just them and their needs. You need to consider the needs of the whole. And so I think it's really useful to segment the world of your customers and say, as an early stage company, what is my initial customer profile? Mm -hmm. And like, what size of business is that? What do they care about? What are the things that 
going to need and really build for that segment of the market because it'll make your job so much easier if you really focus in a little bit more narrow to start with. So for Stripe, this was really emphasizing early stage businesses where developers were decision makers, right? Mm -hmm. Because then what you really needed to do was just focus on building for the developer, right? Building developer tools. That's what we do. We care maybe a lot less about the dashboard, financial reports, et cetera, et cetera, because at these organizations, the finance person doesn't really matter as much. The developer is making the call on whether or not to use Stripe. So that really narrowed down the amount of things that we needed to work on. Mm -hmm. And then over time, you're going to have more customer profiles that you start to build for. So you say, okay, great. We've like built our initial like MVP product. It's doing really well. Let's start building that out a little bit more. What's our next customer profile? Number two, number three, as you kind of grow your representation in the market. And then you might hit upon the business that says, actually, the finance person is making this call on something like Stripe. And they're asking for a bunch of reports and a bunch of things that we don't have. And then you need to make a call. Is this customer worth it? Are we ready to expand into this next market? Because there are probably going to be a lot of other businesses that have finance leaders making the decision. And we want to make sure that we get that out there. So at a high level, that's kind of what I would think about as you're you're building products. And then I think when you are at a point where you want to make a call on, do I build this feature for this customer? Your ideal scenario is that this is not something super specific to like Sally's t-shirt company. It's something that can apply to any retail business that sells Mm -hmm. products online, right? So I, I, I think that's where you emphasize where you spend your time versus saying, I'm just building one for random customers. Like it has to be an important customer and it has to be a customer who is probably kind of like other customers or other Mm. important customers that you might have now or might have in the future. And then there's like a last bucket, I would say, which I'll reserve for like what I call like the Shopify's of the world who are businesses that are not super big because at the time that Stripe was working with Shopify, they were relatively small, just as small as we were really. Mm. And sometimes you just meet a company and a founder that has a particular view on the world and you buy into that and therefore you're going to build something for them. The benefit there is that if Shopify is right, if this is the future, then everyone else is probably going to be copying them. So I find that sometimes you're going to have a customer and a partner that paints the vision for the world and, and you're going to build it. But that's like 5% of where you spend your time. Mm. So it is very rare in, in terms of what you end up building. So don't become a custom feature dev shop for any given customer. That's extremely interesting. Um, Okay, let's jump ahead in the schedules to ensure that we get through a couple of these topics. In the article, you also talked about like what founders and employees should look out for in layering, meaning like someone external and senior gets hired uh, above you, uh, you in this case being an employee at the company. So having seen this happen, can you give founders a heuristic by which to judge when it makes sense to make a senior external leadership hire and when you should instead sort of promote from within? Yeah. So the first obvious one is like, is this person over their head? So maybe this person started as an individual contributor. They were doing well. You promoted them into being a manager and now they're not doing so well. And so then you have to have, I think, a conversation with that 
person that says, hmm, maybe things were a little bit better when you were an individual contributor. Are you enjoying this job? Because it's a different job than the job that you had before. And I'd find often that a lot of people who were promoted into management would say, oh, thank you, gosh, for like mentioning that. Like, you're right. I have hated this. I've hated this the whole time. And, and they'll move back into an individual contributor role, right? And sometimes they just needed to understand that it was okay with you, right? As, as the leader of the company. Because sometimes they feel like they're taking a bullet for you. So, so that's one scenario. And that's, you know, that's relatively easy. Like you're on the same page. I would say second scenario is the scenario where, you know, the person is not doing well in over their heads, but continues to want to be a manager. And I think there, I think you need to have a pretty serious conversation with the person about like where their skills are and where's the gap between the kind of person that you would like to have come in and lead this team. And maybe you can figure out there are some bits of team leadership that they can continue to own while a new person kind of comes into that org. Um, and then lastly, I think this is the hardest piece. You have someone who's a strong performer as an individual contributor. They moved over into management and they're doing well, but you have an opportunity to potentially hire someone great, mm. like truly, truly impressive and could add a lot of value to my business. That's the hardest piece because you don't want to risk that manager leaving. So I think if you have met someone who you think is great and could be a fantastic leader for an organization and you already have a good person who you feel very comfortable with in the role, then I think you need to start going out there and really understanding what great looks like to be mm. sure. I find that a lot of executives interview very well, but are terrible. So for example, if you have a great marketing leader, but you're thinking, is it time to hire a CMO? Reach out to people that you know and respect and say, do you know any fantastic CMOs? I don't want to hire them. I just want to talk to them for 30 to 45 minutes and better understand their role, where they're spending their time. I find that you as a founder might say, oh, I'm looking for someone who's a great product marketing leader. But it turns out that when you talk to a bunch of CMOs, um, they spend a lot of their time on demand generation or something like that, which is something that you as a, as a founder know very little about. So figuring out what are the companies that are out there? What are the companies that are most like you? Who are some truly great CMOs? And use that to create basically a rubric for what you might want to look for in this particular hire. And then I think you can go back and have a conversation with the person who's on the team and say, hey, you are an amazing leader for product marketing. And I would love for you to, instead of being our head of marketing, to become our head of product marketing. Mm. And I can hire someone who is a chief marketing officer who can really own some of these other pieces, demand generation, brand marketing, those kinds of things, and also help you become a better leader in mm. product marketing, right? They still get to manage a team. They're just not managing an org. So I, I think that can help you save the really good hires while still enabling you to hire someone who's really talented at that executive layer. All right. So let's assume I am a Series A founder and I'm about to hire my first uh, head of partnerships and I reach out as you just advised me to and, and someone refers uh, Christina from First Round for me. Like she's the most brilliant partnership person I've ever met. What are the three questions I as a founder should ask you to understand what great looks like? I would say first thing is what are these skills that you should look for in this role? And so for example, as a partnerships person, I might say, can 
communication. And so I would say specifically, what about communication is critical for this role? And how do you test for communication? So for example, in an interview process, I might do something like have someone pitch me on a product that they've worked on in the past that they should know a lot about. I probably won't know a lot about, but if it feels like a good pitch, I'll probably have a good understanding of like whether they're a strong verbal communicator per se. I would ask, what would you look for outside of just the pure interviewing process mm-hmm. um, to ensure that this candidate is, is the right person for the role? So sometimes that could be doing a project, right? I, um, at Stripe, basically every hire I made, I had them do a project of some kind with me. Okay. Sometimes it was data analysis. If I was trying to get a better sense of whether they were analytical, sometimes it was mapping out a landscape of potential partners. If I was trying to get a better sense on how they felt about strategy, those kinds of things. So figuring out what would be critical to the process for this role. And then lastly, I would ask, you know, what are the things that a person who's in a role like this cares most about? Mm. And I think that's, you know, twofold. One, like understanding, are you ready for this person? Because as a partnerships person, I might say, well, I need a bunch of engineers who are ready to do integration that I might need to be able to go out and and form partnerships with Mm. other companies. And so that might be a sign that you are not ready to hire someone like me because you don't have the supporting role to be able to ensure that I can be effective at my job. And then, uh, you know, what are the other elements of what this person needs to be successful and what are they going to care about? Because that can help me sell the candidate at the Mm. end of the process as well, because, you know, it's not just about evaluating uh, what you want. It's also about making sure that the candidate says yes to you. Okay. We have uh, four minutes left. I want to get through three questions. So I think this forces us into a classic (laughs) end of podcast rapid fire. Okay. So one minute per answer. Um, uh, First question, without which habit would you not be where you are today? My primary habit that that I I feel like I like on a lot of commutes is, is to read and like listen to a lot of content. So I just, I really love to like learn about businesses and understand what's going on in the world. And especially in like startups and capital and early stage businesses, um, I, I probably wouldn't have found my way to first round without that. Love it. Secondly, what has your sort of long and deep operational background taught you to over-index on in evaluating companies compared to the the average VC? People, ultimately. I think the biggest difference in whether a super early stage company will be successful or not is in the founders and do they have grit? Because a lot of the other things about the business, the market, the product, all those things will change, but the founders won't. You're being very snappy, so we can do more than three. What is it that you're most urgently trying to learn right now? So I'm actually in the midst of uh, just sent out my first term sheet, all those kinds oh, wow. of things. Congratulations. My very first deal, um, which is very exciting. So just, I think for me, it's a it's a different level of understanding coming from the world of an angel investor, which is much more like tucking yourself into a round that is already in existence sure. um, and going into a world where I make the round into an existence. So I would say the biggest deal for me is making sure that what first round's model is, trying to kind of find that more mold and work with founders to kind of shape the round into a mold that works for first round. Okay. And last question, what is a truth about company building that most people would disagree with you on? 
I would say it's probably better to wait to hire some of these, what a lot of people call like director level people Mm. until later in the business. And I think that's because a lot of hiring mistakes can be made at that middle management type of layer with people who are just frankly not that good. So I think I've I've heard from a lot of VCs that they say, it's time for you to start hiring directors. And, you know, it's a company that's like 150 people or something like that. And, you know, for me, I would say, do you really need that? Is that really what you need right now? And also, do you need it everywhere or do you just need it in some places? All right. Well, thank you, Christina. Uh, The time just uh, flew by and I learned so much. So thanks so much for joining us. (laughs) Thank you. 